on. We have me? There we go. We're in uh, John chapter 19 this morning, and I told you last week that we were doing almost like a two-part series of Good Friday, and this would be Resurrection Sunday. So happy Easter to you all. Um, feels a little bit different with the weather, but uh, that's the way it goes. It's interesting that we wake up every single day and uh, none of us really knows what that day brings. And for the most part, I would say we go to bed and uh, if it's been a typical day, we don't think too much about the day that just happened. We just kind of go to bed and we're already thinking about what's going on next. But um, I'm sure you would agree with me that not all days are created equal. And uh, certain days, events start to unfold and you don't know that this is going to be a day that you're going to remember for a really long time. My wife and I were at home. And uh, we received a phone call from a friend of ours, Holly, and she called asking for Becky and asking if her dad was flying at the time, because her dad at the time was a pilot for United. And, um, and Becky said, I'm not sure. I don't think he's on a flight right now. And she began to explain to us what was going on in New York. And the date was September 11, 2001. You guys all know that because you probably have a similar story where you remember what you were doing, what was going on. We turned on the TV. And sure enough, one of the flights was a United flight, and um, her dad wasn't flying at the time, and it wasn't his flight. But we sat there, like many of you, and watched live as the second plane hit the building, and, um, and things just went downhill from there. Such a memorable day. And this whole idea kind of, kind of came out of that, and it's this idea here of, of never forget. And another one for kind of a different generation would be De- December 7th. Someone under 30, tell me what December 7th is. Okay, 1941. Are you under 30? I just had to call that out right in front of the whole church body. <laughs> um, listening skills depart you at, at age 30, so I'm just, I'm just kidding. But he's right, December 7, 1941, right, the attack on Pearl Harbor, and that would be kind of a, a different generation's never forget. It was, a, it was a day that was just sealed in your mind of, of where you were and what was going on. This morning, we're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection day was a day similar to this idea of never forget, these, these, these moments that, that went on, and they were just huge. Part of the reason that September 11th and December 7th are so memorable is the massive success of this formidable, formidable foe called death on those days, right? We see things going on in New York, and we realize that this lie that we've been sold that we're super safe and we're super secure and it won't ever happen in America begins to kind of crumble in, in front of our eyes. And maybe this idea that we think that we're pretty invincible and things are going along as planned and our brain starts to extrapolate the information and say, if it can happen there to a business person on the whatever floor of Tower One or whatever it might be, then, then maybe something could, could go on with me. And so we start to think about it in these kinds of terms, and it, and it begins to stick in our minds. Christians possess hope beyond the grave. That's the big idea of Christianity. The grave doesn't steal the life that we just sang about. The eternal life that's offered is called eternal life because it doesn't go away at the separation point of death, soul from the body. The evidence of the reality of of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is startling. We're going to get into more of this, but just think about this. Every continent, every color of skin, and every class of people remember and celebrate this day that we're about to read about and, and pull out of the Gospel of John, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
There are many in America who, if you walked up to do a man-on-the-street interview, wouldn't know what December 7th was all about. And yet that wasn't really that long ago. Even the passion and the feelings that emerged after 9-11, haven't they waned somewhat? And those were huge, massive days for Americans. You go to Australia or you go to uh, Kenya today and you ask a person on the street about that day, they probably wouldn't be able to tell you exactly what went on in those days, like why that would be such a memorable day. And yet, a humble son of a carpenter dies, rises from death, and that event from that small place has carried on for 2,000 years. And like I said, it has spanned the entire globe. <clears throat> There's plenty of things that I would say as you go through life, it's, it's okay to remain neutral on. There's so much to figure out in life. Um, I'm only on page like 762 of Wikipedia. I'm trying to get through the whole thing. Uh, it's just, it's really hard. There's so much out there, right? And you, you don't really have time to investigate and really get nailed down on your feelings on every last nuance, right? So you sit there and you say, you know, what really happened to, to JonBenet Ramsey? You know, it's okay if you don't really come to a solid conclusion on that. Do you side with John or Kate? I mean, you know, there's certain things that go by your, your path and you go, eh, I'm not going to read that news article. I just don't have time this morning for that one. I would venture to say this, though. Whether or not Jesus Christ rose from the dead, especially as a person who's sitting in a church building on a Sunday morning, this is one that you want to figure out. This is one that you want to be rock solid on. And if you're like me, maybe for years you took at face value the testimony of someone that you love and trusted as the reason why you might believe in the resurrection. But what happens is if you haven't gone through it yourself, if you haven't developed your, um, your opinion about this and investigated the facts and thought about it and prayed about it and really pursued it, what happens is it's very easy to get knocked off of, your, off of your thinking, knocked off of your foundation, so to speak. Jesus is alive today. That's either true this morning or it's not true. Can we agree on that? That's, that's either a, a, a reality or that's a falsehood. So, so there's no real kind of middle ground there. There's plenty of people that say, well, I, I just don't know that we can know. That's fine. But you, you have to understand that that's either true or it's not true this morning. What we're about to read, this resurrection of Jesus Christ, is, I would say, carelessly and relentlessly attacked by people. And this is absolutely nothing new. In fact, the Gospels and the, and the, and the New Testament are filled with accounts of, uh, of people that have attacked this, this idea. And soon after Jesus rose from the dead, you see the early church fathers preaching this. And as they preach it, they're attacked by it. Right now, here are, here are just a couple of people who are out there attacking this. The, the Jesus Seminar, which has already kind of gone up and, and waned in popularity, um, is, is one group of people. There are mainline denominations that would say, we subscribe and hold to much of the Bible, but do not hold to the historical reality that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. There are even those who would say, I believe in the same Jesus you do. I believe in the same Bible you do. But come on, rising from the dead physically? No. So, you have to settle it for your mind and say, is it true or is it not true? Was it meant to be a really good story, to teach us some principles, to show us that just like in nature, things, all things can become new again? Or did it really happen? What did the gospel writers intend? We're going to look at all of this. Don't be fooled. 
The Bible would call people who say this, people who do this, savage wolves. I've never been confronted with a savage wolf, but on my paper route, I was confronted by a really angry dog once. That was super scary, okay? And it was super early, and it was dark, and that was enough for me. A savage wolf would just kind of you know, blow that up even more. That's pretty strong language. Listen to Jude 1.3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to catch this. Contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. This is a warning that these attacks, these new findings, these deeper meanings, these generous grace theories, what they are doing is they are denying Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. In fact, the, the, the reason we have to distinguish in doctrinal statements and the reason I have to distinguish as I'm speaking with someone about do you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is because man's de- depravity says, well, we want to get around the fact that he bodily rose because there are certain implications that go with that. He just rose as a spirit and whole sects and cults have risen saying Jesus was, uh, in fact, a person who did rise from dead, but it was just a spirit. And to look at the, the biblical text and even uh, ideas outside the Bible is to blow that apart. I'm sure some of you in this can attest to this, but believing in the resurrection of the dead allows you, causes you, uh, enables you to suddenly become estranged from certain people. It allows you to be labeled a fool. It's one thing to believe in the resurrection, and someone looks at you. I mean, have you ever just had these people come to you and say, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And, and when you say, yes, I do, a lot of times the, the next question is, why? Why do you believe that? And some of you, like me, you just, your palms started getting urged, like, I know there's good reasons for this. Here we go. Here's what I want. I want for those of you who are convinced this morning, I want this to be a, a, a refresher course or perhaps a teaser to say, please get into this. Settle this issue once and for all or strengthen it, or remember it, or be bold about it. Because it's one thing to believe in the resurrection from the dead. It's another thing to preach the resurrection of the dead. If you believe in it, you're thought a fool. You might be estranged from certain people. If you start to preach it, if you start to be a witness for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, here's what happens. Acts 4.1 The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. As you read on in Acts, you realize that didn't shut them up. That didn't stop them for a second. But it's one thing to believe in it. People say, okay, you're weird. You stay in your cubicle kind of away from me. I'll make fun of you via email and you know, text messages to other people in the office, but that's fine. But the second you start to preach the resurrection of the dead, you see this time and again in Acts even. As soon as that's brought up, all of a sudden it sells elsewhere in Acts, people began to sneer when they heard about the resurrection of the dead. But it always says this too, but some wanted to hear more about that. 
John 11:25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. So I, I, I say it again this morning. Jesus is alive today. That's either a true statement or a false statement. I tried really hard to stay just in John because I don't want to... I don't want to strip John of his unique voice and his unique angle on this, on this resurrection account. I think I did an okay job. I give myself a C plus. You can grade me later on of how I did. It's really hard in some ways. What I, what I wanted to do was allow John to speak what he saw in the resurrection and in the story. There are other parts, though, as I got into wanting to, to give it a defense for the resurrection that I, I, I decided to go elsewhere. He provides this final and most convincing sign that Jesus is who he says he is. And the sign is this, an empty tomb. Remember these seven signs that are coming along? He would give a sign and he would make some kind of an I am statement. Well, the I am statement for this one is the one we just read. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And then he backs up those words with the sign of an empty tomb and rising from the dead. If this were a play, this would be like the final resolution of the play in which the main character, Jesus, kind of sep- steps up center stage and it's, it's kind of fully disclosed now who he is in all his glory. That's what this account is all about. So is there evidence <coughs> that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened? Read with me in John 19. And we're going to back up a little bit to John 19, starting in verse 33. So that when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. That's John inserting his own uh, author's footnote right there. Does that sound like a... Like a word picture that Jesus died on the cross? Or does that sound like this is fact that I'm reporting on, and I want to make it crystal clear that this actually happened? You just think about that. Verse 36. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. And we'll stop there for a moment. I want to walk through some biblical evidence for the resurrection. Here are some things that we've already covered. Just by going through the the Gospel of John, we've already been giving evidence, actually, for Uh, the viability of of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here are just a couple of things. One is that Jesus' resurrection was predicted by um, Isaiah the prophet 700 years before it happened. And we've looked at Isaiah a bunch in, in in this process already. Here's the second thing is that Jesus predicted his death and his resurrection. We've talked about this, but just like a, a movie sometimes will give you a, 
a critical piece of evidence at the end of it. And all of a sudden, the rest of the movie falls into place and things make sense. After you see the resurrection of the dead from, from Jesus, all of these different things start to make sense. And many of the gospel writers will say, we didn't understand this at the time, but after Jesus rose or after Jesus ascended or left us, then we, then we remembered what he had said. And it started to make sense. Thirdly is that Jesus died a public death. This is really critical in the story. Because what happened didn't happen behind closed doors with a couple of people. Instead, what happened was very, very public. And so to circulate these kinds of letters and to circulate these kinds of accounts would be foolish if this didn't happen. Because there were, there were plenty of people. It's, it's like an event happening, uh, like, like 9-11 happening, obviously minus the TV cameras and whatnot. But you could go there and say that was a pretty public thing that went on. I'm skeptical. Did this really go on or did this not go on? And as someone speaking with you, you could hear it in their voice. Man, I've talked to 29 people in my travels to New York this weekend. I think this really happened. This isn't just a fabricated tale. Dr. Luke, I put this in your bulletin this week. In fact, I would say this is a great memory verse for you or your family to linger on and to remember. Acts is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke written by a doctor. In Acts 1.3, he says this. He's writing to Theophilus. And he's writing faithful accounts of what went on. He says, after his suffering, talking about Jesus, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs. That's our clue as readers to say, this is not a leap of faith. This is not take your logical brain, your thinking brain, your rational brain, all that you know about how you ascertain truth, and set it at the door because now we're going to church where you just have to make massive leaps of faith and not engage your brain. That's not the way God wired us. That's not even honoring to how God created us in His image. He created us with thinking capacities and feeling capacities and faith capacities. And all of them work in tandem as we try to discern truth. He says, many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, we have a little bit of a shorter time. We're going to be celebrating communion here in a few moments. But I want to try and wrangle through a bunch this morning. A lot of this is written down for you in your notes. And so you don't have to try to scramble to keep up. Let me just say this at the start, though, that the standards in verifying truth for natural sciences different, differ when you're, than, than when you're trying to figure out the truth for historical sciences. Now, this is true whether you ask me what I had for lunch today or whether you're trying to ascertain what happened to a person in a village far away 2,000 years ago. If you ask me what I had for lunch today, unlike the natural sciences, we can't go into a laboratory and recreate with with perfect synchronicity, exactly what happened yesterday for lunch. Time marches on, right? And so we can't have repeatable experiments that, that show us truth. And so certain, certain things that we would use in natural science, we can't apply to historical things. And this is, how, this is how it goes. What we rely on is evidence, either poorly presented or well presented. It's the testimony of others. It's fundamental logic. If I say that I had lunch uh, across town yesterday at such and such a time, and yet you were with me 
five minutes later, a half hour away, and you've never known me to be able to teleport, your basic logic would say I'm hearing testimony, but it doesn't line up with logic. There's no bullet train that would get him over to where I was with him five minutes later. So you're not just leaning on the testimony of someone else. You're applying basic logic and basic rationale to the whole scene. And I want to encourage you strongly to do that as we speak this morning. We're listening this morning uh, to the testimony primarily of Jesus' enemies, Jesus' friends, Jesus himself, and then prophets and the Holy Scriptures. So men who spoke hundreds of years in advance. Here's how we're going to do this. I'm going to just go, go through three kind of basic objections. And people often have objections. Some people are just closed-hearted and closed-minded. And I realize as I start to dialogue and speak with some of you in this room that some in this room are closed-hearted and hard-hearted to the fact that this is even a possibility. And so to go into re- reason and logic and looking at evidence, it, it can be a bit of an exercise in futility if you are predisposed to say, no way can this ever happen. I would say for the most part, I totally agree with that. Someone comes to me and says they rose from the dead. You ought to be skeptical. We'll look at the disciples' reaction. They were certainly skeptical. But I would pray and ask that you would have an open heart, and I would realize also this is spiritual insight that we're looking at. Here's one. Christ didn't really die. And there's so many that we could go over. I picked three. Sometimes people just say, as they've attacked the gospel accounts, and almost every time Time or Newsweek pulls up a story on the resurrection or Jesus or whatever, that catches my eye. And sometimes I buy it because I want to read it and I just want to see what the latest theory is, what the latest idea is. The History Channel has... I almost throw my remote across the room once in a while when I watch the History Channel. The History Channel. Because they're recording history and whoever records the history is doing it right from their lens, from their worldview. So if I come at it that I was uh, evolved from a single-cell organism and resurrection is impossible, history will play out a certain way with my lens. Christ didn't really die. This is, a, this is a theory that has come and gone through the centuries. Remember, nothing is new under the sun. The basic fundamental thought here is that he didn't actually die, but he fainted. Therefore, you don't re- rise from the dead if you fainted. Right? Can we all agree on that? If I faint today and then I come up and someone says, He's alive! People go, who cares? He just fainted. You know? Nancy's like, yeah, I confirm it. He's just kind of, you know, got lightheaded. He needs more breakfast. Whatever. Evidence of his death seems sufficient to uh, Jesus' enemies and the officials who were in charge. So, so just as you, as you read the story, Jesus' enemies are actually going to provide so much evidence to the resurrection of Jesus Christ that it's actually quite astounding and I think a bit comical. Thank you, Lord, for including it in the scriptures. Uh, first, first off is this. Jesus was ordered by a professional executioner to die. So... Again, this was done in a very, a very public way. We didn't, we didn't get all into it last week as much as maybe some of you would have liked. But, but what, what happens during scourging? What happens during the walk to the cross? What happens during an actual crucifixion? The whole point of crucifixion is, is to die, is to be killed. And this is being put in the hands of professionals who did it well. In other words, you would fail. You would not keep your job long. And they would frown on it greatly if you tried to execute the person, but you, you messed up. He was handed over to professional killers. 
There's a centurion recorded in Mark 15 that assured Pilate that Jesus was dead. We'll get to why this is important later. But Pilate wanted to make absolute sure that his order was carried out. Bones were broken because, as we just read, they found that he was already dead. Because there was a Jewish ceremony coming up, they were, they were asking, can we break the bones of the person? They would take a mallet and crush the person's bones so they can't push themselves up and breathe anymore. Expediating the process of dying. When they went and found that he was already dead, they didn't need to break the bones. They didn't know they were fulfilling uh, a centuries-old prophecy by doing that. But they were making absolute sure. We, we also read that a spear was put in his heart, uh, verse 34. There's a little bit of debate here, but most believe that's his heart sack rupturing and that blood and water flowed out. That means you're done when that happens. Joseph asked Pilate for the body. Here's an interesting thing, though. Pilate grants that permission, but he's going to make sure that Jesus is dead before he grants the permission. The body's put through a complex burial process. By the time you take the 75 pounds of spice and myrrh that Nicodemus brought to the scene and all the grave clothes, they say it's somewhere around 100 pounds. So they go through this, this uh, embalming process, so to speak. It's not quite mummifying the way that uh, Egyptians would do, but it was this intricate process of putting spice and then a layer of cloth, and it was all wrapped up. And so Jesus is in there. So just paint this in your mind while you're asking the question, did he really faint or did he die? In Matthew 27, Pilate orders that the tomb is sealed. And he says this, make the tomb as secure as you know how. He was worried about grave robbers. He wasn't worried about Jesus escaping. Before you would worry about really sealing up that tomb, you would want to make absolute sure that Jesus is dead. And he's already been assured by his centurion, Jesus is in fact dead. Let me read on in the story. John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Early, the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love that John puts that in. John never really names himself. He calls himself the beloved disciple, the other disciple. But I love that he puts that in. <laughs> Peter's better at him and first at him in most things. But like a younger brother, I could see, but I beat him to the tomb. I'm way faster. That's just a little side note. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. But catch this. Isn't this just like Peter? He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. That's Peter, man. Barge right in. He's more courageous. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Here's the second objection that sometimes people say is that someone stole the body. It's the theft theory. Basically, that Jesus did in fact die. There's no question about it. It's, it's, it's as documented as it can be that the body was stolen. I would say one of the most compelling evidences to me as I've wrestled with this and looked at this years ago 
is the changed lives of the, of the disciples. They went, from, they went from heading in one direction in life, and it was very uh, earthy. It was what they could tell from here on earth. And just the way you would imagine supernatural, divine uh, information being given, their, their lives went a completely different way. Just like Paul. Paul was killing Christians. He met the risen Jesus. He becomes Jesus' best advocate and being killed as a Christian. The disciples went uh, from, from running away from everything. They ran away from servant girls. They, they cowered in all kinds of scenarios. And all of a sudden, they became bold witnesses. I just read a passage from Acts. There are so many more where the disciples suddenly are boldly proclaiming. What would have this complete reversal of behavioral but a resurrection? It was instantaneous. It wasn't even over a course of time where they went to the right seminary, the right school, and suddenly they started to act a little bit more courageously. Instead, it was instantaneous, and it carried on until they died, which most of them was being martyred. People don't die for a lie. There's always someone that cracks. If you study history, if you look at things, uh, if this was in fact a lie, the disciples would have known it. They could have mustered strength and mustered courage maybe for a season of time. Someone cracks when there's a lie going on. When it comes down to you dying for this and you're sitting there, think about it. Would you ever die for a lie like that? Now, would there be 12 of you that would die for a lie? I think not. To silence the early resurrection proclaimers, which were causing quite a ruckus, and as the scriptures record, turning the world upside down, causing huge riots, causing problems, threatening to topple over everything, all the authorities <clears throat> or enemies had to do was produce a body. You produce a body of Jesus, and it's over. Their whole, their whole thing, it's like popping the balloon. The whole gig is up if the body's produced. So do you not think that effort and resources went into trying to find the body. If there was, in fact, a stolen body, they would have gone after it and tried to find it. John's eyewitness account in 20, verse 8, about going inside, and, and even in 19, as he said, these things happen. I want to record it for you so that you know that it happened. These are the, these are the witnesses of an, of an eyewitness. What was it that made him instantly believe? Here's what I think. I don't think it was just the absence of a body. It wasn't just that he walked in there was no body there. It's that he walked in and there was no body there, but the grave clothes were lying there as if a body had disappeared from it. And that's what instantly said, if there was no body, then he might have reasoned, as Mary Magdalene did, someone's taken him. The body's gone. But instead, it was instant belief. This precise way that the, that the grave clothes were laying, John decides to record, I think it made an impact on him saying that even the, the, the head covering was laid there. Instant belief. Here's the third thing. Disciples made up the resurrection story, the projection theory, that despairing disciples made up a tale of the resurrection to kind of keep the thing going. Here's what I would venture to say on that. Right off the top, these guys weren't really that smart. I mean, no offense, but they weren't. They were pretty simple fishermen. They weren't mastermind world schemers that we're going to somehow pull this off. And, and the Bible's pretty blunt and pretty open about all kinds of things that would actually detract from their story. 
I mean, they appear fairly clueless right up to the point of where he rises from the dead. They don't really know what's going on. There's all kinds of other little evidences that, that, would, that, would, that would indicate they're not lying very well. It's really dishonoring. In fact, it hurts the credibility of their story that women found the empty tomb first. That's horrible to do in this time frame and this culture because they couldn't even testify in a court of law. So their testimony was completely invalid. So if you're making this up, you would say, eh, let's not use women. Someone in, I mean, someone in that group, if this were a lie, would say, eh, that's a bad idea. Let's chuck that one. Let's make it a man that finds it. They didn't do that because this is what happened. Everything indicates that the disciples were not expecting a resurrection. They didn't see him die and go, ooh, goody, we can't wait for the sequel. What's going to happen next? Right? They were despairing. No one knew that the, that the resurrection was coming. In fact, on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, Jesus appears, and I don't know exactly how this happens, but he hides himself. He's talking to two of the disciples. Here's what he says about them. He says, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe. And it says, then he began to preach himself to them, starting with the prophets. And he starts to open their eyes of what was really going on. The women came, uh, came to the tomb, planning to proceed with the burial process, not expecting an empty tomb. Disciples were hard to convince. Luke 24:11 says they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. So they went and checked it out themselves. No one went there Sunday morning saying, oh, it's the third day. Let's all show up and see what's going on. It seemed to catch everyone by surprise. One of the things that frustrates me most is people who say the Bible's filled with a lot of stories that didn't actually happen historically, but in fact they are used to teach us life lessons. And so let's pass on, let's dig out the life truth and that nugget of truth that's in there, but it didn't actually happen. And to do that is to wad up the testimony and chuck it out the window of the people who recorded this. They didn't consider it myth or symbol, but actual and physical. Listen to Acts 2.32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. Of this fact. You don't say that when what you really mean is it's a, it's a metaphor. It's a word picture, so to speak. I wouldn't stand up here and record something as fact and then turn around and say, well, what I meant was it was a metaphor. You would all look at me and say, you said it was a fact. We know what that means. John couldn't be more emphatic that a real living body was before him after the resurrection from the dead. 1 John 1, 1, we've looked at this. But he says, we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and touched, and, and our hands have touched. He's talking about the word of life, Jesus. He says, this we proclaim to you. It couldn't be more emphatic that it was real. Thomas Aquinas, who was an early theologian, uh, had, these, had these things. I, I just decided to put them into your notes uh, in their entirety so you could see them. But he brings up the fact that unlike the Jehovah's Witness, unlike other sects uh, of today that would say, I believe in Jesus, I believe in the Bible, but I deny that he actually rose in bodily form. Jesus passes all these different tests. He had a physical body. Luke 24, 37. They were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. So here's going to be this exchange. I think I'm seeing a ghost. Jesus is trying to convince them I'm not a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do you doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. 
And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, I love this. Hey, you got something to eat? That's pretty cool. Because it's like, okay, I've seen Pirates of the Caribbean. I know that when, you know, if you try to drink and you're just a skeleton, it just goes right through you. I want to see if this guy can eat. I mean, Jesus did that very specifically to say, I'm real. I have a body. Like Thomas, the, touch, touch me. That's a physical body I have here. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Not only did he have a physical body, he says he had an emotive life, meaning that he was greeting and dialoguing with friends. He also had an intellectual life. He was dialoguing and teaching the scriptures to these two disciples on the, on the road to Emmaus. And his divine nature was apparent by passing through walls, coming into locked rooms. He had a resurrected body. Appearing to a crowd of people, not just individuals, not just one or two people, but he appeared to crowds of people over 40 days. One time Paul records that he, re- he appeared to 500 people at one time. Once again, if you're trying to do a cover-up, you just edit that line out because that's too hard to back up. Who were the 500 people? There's places in Scripture that say, go and talk to these people. Most of them are still with us. Go and ask them for yourself. He also has showed up at a variety of, uh, to a variety of people in a variety of places for 40 days, after which all of a sudden, all these appearances stopped. That's because he ascended. All of this points logically to a resurrection. There's lots of remaining evidence, but in our short time, I'll just blitz through a couple. One is that the, the, the meaning of the resurrection to the early Christians, uh, it couldn't be more profound. In fact, if you take Jewish theology pre-Christ, it's all looking toward Messiah. It's all looking for Messiah. And there are several places in Scripture that say he was a man of God and he was looking for the kingdom of God. He was looking for the Messiah. <coughs> Some of the early disciples, before Jesus called them, Andrew was one of them. He was one who had been out looking for the Messiah. That's why he ran back and said, we found the Messiah, Simon. We found him. We've been out looking for him. That's what Jewish theology was all about. Jewish theology was also about God inhabiting the temple, right? All of a sudden, you read the New Testament, and these good Jewish boys and girls who've been taught and trained and practiced things a certain way, all of a sudden, all kinds of things flipped, and everything centered on the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they saw that as one package that meant the the world to them. All of the scriptures that follow in the New Testament, as well as their community life, centered on the resurrection. The Sabbath, which for a couple thousand years had been celebrated on Saturday and had been commanded to do so, all of a sudden was turned to Sunday. Sunday became the day of the week that Christians began to worship. The reason they did that was to celebrate, commemorate, and remember the resurrection of Jesus. I read some different reports this week of some different non-Christian historians and encyclopedia writers of the day. And and it would say they were were reporting about these Christians. And it was kind of comical to hear their third-party witness of what was going on, saying, I don't know exactly what goes on because I haven't been to them, but I do know that they go early in the morning on a given day of the week and they, they chant verses and they celebrate this Jesus as if a God. That was the early church practice. What would turn a good Jewish boy and girl 
from worshiping as commanded on the Sabbath, Saturday to Sunday, but the resurrection. Here's another one. There's no enshrinement at the tomb. When someone dies today, people show up and people want to be around the headstone, the tomb, the place that it happened, whatever. And there is none of this recorded in the scripture. In fact, soon after, the tomb plays a very little part in the story, except that it was empty. No one's bringing flowers. It would be offensive to me if you all went to my tomb and sang tributes and wrote poems and gathered there while I was still alive. I'd be a little bit ticked off. I'd be like, hey, I'm over here. Come on over. Let's have a barbecue. This is really weird. You know, do it when I'm gone. That makes total sense. Finally, I've already alluded to them. Josephus is probably the most prominent. He lived from 37 to 100 A.D. But lest you say, well, all you've ever used is the Bible to, to figure this out. There, are, there, are, there is so much extra-biblical text that points to the resurrection. And it's fascinating because these people will, will point out there is no historical doubt that, that, that this Jesus from Nazareth rose from the dead. And yet they weren't Christians. And I marvel at that. And I say, wow, that just shows it really is a heart issue. And God, God is blinding his eyes. But, but God allowed non-Christian historians to, to back up what the gospel writers wrote about. I want to just give you on the screen here a couple of books. There's, there's a lot of books out there. Uh, these are just books that I've personally read and I own in my library. I'd be more than happy to loan them to you. But starting with kind of uh, the older and, and moving to, to the new, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity and G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy are both uh, maybe, maybe a little bit tedious reads. They're not uh, read by the pool and kind of bebop to your iPod kind of reads. Uh, but they have a lot of great stuff in them. Uh, things that I grew up on kind of through youth group and through Bible college uh, Josh McDowell's More Than a Carpenter, very simple, small book. He, he takes uh, a C.S. Lewis's Lord, Liar, or Lunatic idea and just explores it very, very simply and briefly. For people who aren't willing to commit to a big, long, tedious read, I would say start there. He also has a follow-up book or a, a book that takes everything he writes in 70 pages and decides to take 600 pages with 1,000 footnotes in it called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Uh, those of you who love highlighters, quiet rooms, and late-night study sessions, pick up that. Really is fascinating. Uh, Little has two books out, Know what, what, what You Believe and Why You Believe. It takes just basic chapters and says, is the, is the Bible reliable? Do science and, and God agree? And just takes some basic things. Very simple, basic apologetics. And kind of more modern-day, Lee Strobel, probably most of you in this room have heard of the case for faith, the case for Easter, the case for all these others. I think I've only read the case for Christ. But here was a skeptic. Here was a Chicago, I think, Tribune reporter out to finally, once and for all, disprove Christianity based on logic, and he becomes a Christian. Because the evidence is so completely overwhelming. And as he goes and interviews um, experts in various fields trying to write an airtight case, he gets saved and says, wow, this is truth. That's the book title. This is evidence that demands a verdict. That's why I would say, I would implore you, be settled on this one. Don't be wishy-washy on whether Jesus is alive today. It's huge. Finally, Vintage Jesus by Mark Driscoll. Uh, th this we believe there's a couple of chapters that deal specifically with the, the resurrection. Um, go by the book title because it's, it's a, a bunch of contributors to it. And Vintage Jesus by Mark Driscoll. Again, he kind of goes through a bunch of different things, but one specifically on the resurrection. 
So what does this all mean for you? What does this all mean for me? (coughs) There's two underground disciples that are mentioned here. Joseph and Nicodemus. And it's interesting that John, uh, John points out their fault in kind of a parenthetical way in the, in the text. He points out that, that, um, that, that Joseph... Um, let me just get it for you. It says, Joseph of Arimathea. Now, now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. That's verse 38. And then he goes down to, to, to Nicodemus. And he wants to make it clear that this was the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. He wants to make it known that these were the two that were the undercover agents. And earlier in John's Gospel, John chapter 12, 42, he writes this, Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. Talking about Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Verse 47, he says this, As for the person who hears my words, but does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him in the last day. My question is this. Are you one that that does believe, but either fears the opinion, the rejection, the conflict with others of a spouse, a friend, an office mate, school, family member? Are you one who believes but loves the praise of people more than than the praise of, of God? Are you one who believes but values the judge of popular opinion rather than the judge of the universe? There's Nicodemus and there's Joseph, both of which started off as kind of undercover agents. And I think John includes their uh, secretness, their undercoverness in the text here because all of a sudden they're doing something very, very public. All of a sudden their faith is being acted upon. And so what they said they believe, unlike other leaders who feared the religious leaders, they decided to take action on it. And just like baptism is a very public thing, if I go up and get baptized next week and you look at me two weeks later and say, yeah, but you got baptized. You, you sided with Jesus. I go, well, I was just saying that. Well, but, but, but your actions backed it up. So it is with these guys. All of a sudden, they were doing something very public going and caring for this supposed criminal and, and tending to his burial needs was, was an act of faith. It was all of a sudden taking what they said they believed and what they believed in their heart and they began to confess it with their mouth, confess it by their footsteps walking toward the grave with burial spices. I love this transformation. I think this is Nicodemus and this is Joseph boldly and stepping out to support Jesus. This morning we're going to do communion. We're going to share in communion. And right on this table it says, in remembrance of me. I started off this morning with this idea of never forget. And one thing about the resurrection that we are to do is is to, to never forget it. And Jesus wanted to instill that in us and make sure that we got this. And so he instilled the Lord's Supper. 
as the band comes up and as we begin to prepare for this, I want to just ask a couple of questions. What do you fear most this morning? Do you fear people? I remember fearing as a high school student who would already started to get involved in some ministry things. But I knew my heart wasn't right with the Lord. I remember feeling the tug at a service and thinking in my head, if I go forward right now though, what will people think? I've already told them I'm a Christian. I've already kind of played the church game for a while now. What will people think was the thought going in my head. I would say I believed, but I feared people's opinion more than man's opinion. At the age of 17 as a junior, that thought didn't cross my mind as I walked forward and I knew I had to get baptized and I knew I had to give my life totally to the Lord. It didn't cross my mind for a second what people thought. That was no longer an issue. What do you cherish most? The approval, the attaboy from other people, from your boss, from your spouse, from your parents, from your friends, or the praise and approval of God? And finally, whose favorable judgment do you strive for? Think about this. Whose favorable judgment am I living my life for right now? Someone to get a promotion? Someone to get a job? Someone to get a girl or a guy? Someone to get noticed? Someone to get just a couple of kudos and pats on the backs? Or God's? Jesus is alive today. Let's pray. Father, as we come around the table and do what those in your family do, and that is to celebrate and to remember and to marvel at the price that was paid for our freedom. We want to do so with humility. We want to do so with reverence. And we do so joyfully, God. We obey this because we know this truth that Jesus, you are alive today. We follow this command to remember in the same way that we would an anniversary or a birthday because we celebrate the day this happened, but we also celebrate the implications and the reality of what it means for us today in our love relationship with you. God, as we take the piece of bread we remember and proclaim the broken body that you gave for us as we drink this little cup of juice God we are proclaiming your death until you come again and we're grateful for the blood bought freedom that costs you everything